Hello, and welcome back to the Radical Healing Podcast. I'm Erica. And I'm Julianne. In season two, we're doing something a little different. We're interviewing some members of a group of CAJ alumni who are working on bringing to light abuse that occurred some decades ago at CAJ. In a content warning, we will be discussing various types of abuse experienced by children in these episodes. Here's a quote from a 2019 statement from the CAJ Concerned Alumni Committee. On February 6, 2019, a steering committee representing concerned alumni sent a letter to CAJ and its six founding missions. Send, resonate global mission, serve globally, team, world venture, and OMS, calling for resolution of an alleged history of sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that occurred at the school, as well as in its dorms and hostels. They asked for an investigation into the alleged abuse via a reputable, independent, and mutually agreed-upon agency. We will be hearing from survivors and supporters about where this investigation is at today, what we can expect from it, and how they've been building a community focused on truth-telling and healing. If you'd like to learn more about the investigation or context surrounding it, we have more information available on our website at RadicalHealingPod.com. Hello, everyone. Today, we have with us Janet Pape Oates. Uh, Janet is one of the CAJ alumni who really got the investigation started and has been continuing the work. Um, Janet, would you uh, start out by giving us an update on how the investigation is going? I wish I had more of an update. It remains the same as the report that um, Debbie Rhodes and Brenda Seat described. We had anticipated having the report and the recommendations by now, but apparently the individual with the Telius law firm who was drafting this final report became ill with COVID and had to uh, retire from the company. And so they hired someone else and we've heard nothing more. They said it was, was delayed. There's no report more than what is on the Talius website for CAJ alumni. They posted it September, mid-September, and we haven't heard anything since then. Okay. So we're waiting, just waiting. Yes. And it's- today is November 11th, uh, just for giving some context. Maybe when yes. this episode comes out, there will be an update, but uh, yeah. we shall see. Yes. Great. Thank you for that update. I know many people are waiting on that report. Um, so yeah, we shall see what that holds. So yes. Janet, um, we are so happy to have you on the podcast. As of now, you are the most senpai of all of the guests of the CAJ <laughs> alumni on our podcast. You graduated mm-hmm. in 1963 and yes. have a lot of uh, amazing stories of Japan at that time, I'm sure. Um, so let's get into it. And if you could start out by sharing about your background and a bit about your family as well and how it came to be that you grew up in Japan. As you said, I graduated in 1963. I first um, went to CAJ for fifth and sixth grade, and like everybody, interrupted by furlough. We turned in time to do all of high school at CAJ. I think my 
experience was different than a lot of people. My parents were English. We later became Canadians. And as an adult, I became uh, a U.S. citizen when I was handling immigration and uh, citizenship services for a U.S. member of Congress. My parents had been China missionaries like Debbie's, Debbie Rhodes, and they spent seven war years in China. They went before it became World War, but they went in 1939. All sorts of experiences separate and together. Their home was bombed. They had to flee to the um, mountains, the Himalaya mountains, western China, Yunnan, had malaria, typhoid, living with these mountain tribes people. And then the U.S. Flying Tigers came into that part of China. And after that, the uh, U.S. Forces Army came in. And it was strange. My father was hired. They contracted with him to be a Protestant chaplain for them. They had uh, one Catholic priest. And so here they hired a British missionary to be a, an honorary lieutenant in the army. I was born after the war ended, born in China in 1945, late. And we went back to England and my parents were just exhausted. And yet they found that nobody in England was the least bit interested in what the work in China had been. They'd all lived through the war and bombing. So we're not interested in, in what my parents had been doing. So they were really discouraged. Um, and then the communists were taking over in China. So they traveled back to Canada and were there for two years. My father spent time as the pastor of a little church in the middle of Newfoundland. And then they got the call to go to Japan, which is really rough for them because it was the Japanese had been their enemies. And uh, to return to Japan was a challenge. So you were born in China, and then you moved to England, and then you moved to Canada, and then you moved to Japan, right? Correct. Wow. So what was your family's experience in Japan like? Well, most of the evangelical missions had their missionaries do language study in Karuizawa for two years. So we went there. My parents finished their language study and got assigned to Tokyo. But I had to stay at the um, tiny boarding school that was run by the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, or it had been China Inland Mission, my parents' mission. I had to stay in boarding school and um, was there for two years. And like everyone, all of the MKs who Base boarding school. I just remember lying next to my parents in their bed, just clinging to them, trying to stay in Tokyo and not to have to go back up to boarding school, knowing that I wouldn't see my parents from September till Christmas. You know, I had very good dorm parents, but it was still, as we all know, not the same. You don't have family there. And even with kind dorm parents, you just always felt nobody's really looking out for me. I'm thinking back, I remember outgrowing my shoes and nobody noticed. My toes bent and nobody noticed. I mean, people just didn't notice. Oh. Each, you know, the children, it was, it was a 
not a deep, caring kind of um, parenting, I guess is the best way to describe it, or non-parenting. After I had been at boarding school for two years, I was the last OMF child left still in the school. So they closed the school. And somehow my parents were able to convince OMF to allow me to join them in Tokyo and go to CAJ for two years. And then we were scheduled for furlough. The OMF CIM rule was that when you turned 11, you had to go back to your home country and stay there. Your parents just had to send you back. So while I'm furlough, or prior to that, I guess, my parents made the decision to switch to the Evangelical Alliance Mission team. And so I didn't have to stay in Canada when we went back from furlough. Would kids be expected to go live with family back in the home country? I know that was, a, that was the crazy thing. They, they had to go back to boarding school. And so many, being British, there is that whole boarding school approach. You know, if you were wealthy, you sent your kids to boarding school. And a lot of the OMF uh, parents found that by sending their children back and going to good boarding schools, which OMF let them do, they were then able to go on to university, to Cambridge and Oxford. If they had never been missionaries, they never, their children would never have been in the income level to allow them to go on to university like that. So there was just that tradition in the British missions that you went to boarding school like many middle and upper class British children and uh, what was wrong with being away from your children for your your parents for five years. So I really appreciated the fact I always have that my parents put me first and with my sister put us first in their whatever they did. We were their priority. So for me, going to CAJ was an escape from boarding school versus going to boarding school for the first time, like so many alumni. And uh, what kind of ministry work did your parents do? My father quickly moved from the Japanese work he'd been teaching in a seminary, was invited to be the pastor of one of Tokyo's big Chinese churches. And the Chinese culture is so different from the, the Japanese. They're outgoing, funny. The church is full of these bossy aunties who just run the show in the church. I've described it as the Forbidden City. I think it's still there. Is the Forbidden City restaurant still in Tokyo? Do you know the Chinese? I don't know. I have no idea. Because <laughs> lots of alumni my age and a little younger remember it. Lovely Chinese restaurant. And the owners were very involved in our church. So everything was at the church or Forbidden City restaurant. And so it was a really fun environment. My father was also Far East representative for the Officers Christian Fellowship because he had been chaplain in China and, and knew many officers in the U.S. Um, so he worked with um, U.S. military officers and officers from lots of other countries from around the world, which was fascinating and helped us get to know people and families in other countries. My mother taught English and journalism, creative writing at 
Japan Christian College and Tokyo, is it Tokyo Women's University? Some other university there. Mm -hmm. She had been a 1937 graduate in political science from the University of London School of Economics. If you can imagine a woman in 1937 (laughs) graduating in political science, that tells you a lot about my mother. Mm -hmm. Um, She got a postgraduate degree in social work. She was an athlete. She was captain of the University of London's field hockey team. And many years later, coached field hockey at CAJ a couple of times. And uh, thinking back about this, I discovered in later years, she was really the driving force in their missionary career. My dad was an up-and-coming executive with the British Railroad, following his father's footsteps. And they fell in love. And uh, But my mother said, I'm going to be a missionary in China. Um, I'll marry you if you come to China with me. And he did. So that's how they got to China. Um, So summarizing the background that I had, it was different from so many of the MK parents. My parents were older. Um, They had a lot of experience compared to these eager young uh, missionaries who had listened to the call from General MacArthur uh, for missionaries to come to Japan. Many of the men had been GIs, enlisted soldiers. So they hadn't had that kind of senior management experience that you might have hoped if they had been on the school board or teachers in the school. And so I've often wondered if that didn't create some of the environment at CAJ, not only the missionaries on the CAJ board, but also very young, inexperienced teachers, dorm parents, etc. I think we talked about this with Debbie and Brenda, but I mean, also to go from being a soldier in a really terrible war, like that yes. leaves you with so much trauma. So many adults who had experienced uh, just a lot of trauma. Yes. And, and didn't know how that, to deal with it. Yes. And they, they had been the enemy. <laughs> they had been the enemy. Yeah. And, uh, so yes, very yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> that's that's a lot. Um, would you also share a little bit about your experience as a student at CAJ? Just what do you remember? I loved it. I, there was the normal adolescent angst, I suppose. But you know, as you matured, as you got to your junior and senior year, involved in everything, cheerleading, in the play, just really a good experience for me. And like so many, my career was influenced by teachers there, especially Howard Blair. Uh, As I look back, I really appreciate the education I received there. So you had a positive experience at CAJ. And now how did you first hear about the stories of abuse? And how did you get involved in the investigation? Well, my first awareness of the abuse was in the fall of 2017 with that emergence of the Me Too movement. And I know that turns people off just using that phrase. But that was when alumni began to write on the CAJ Happy Memories, quote unquote, flashback Facebook page. 
they began writing about abuses. And I was just sh- shocked. One alumnus in particular wrote about his experience about being gang raped in the dorm. And the reaction to his post, which was pulled off initially, I was shocked at the reaction to that because there seemed more concern about the language he used rather than the fact that he had been raped. I'd never attended CAJ reunions, so I, I hadn't ever heard the rumors of abuse. My husband and I spent 28 years in Alaska, in Anchorage, and you never leave Alaska in the summertime. It's too beautiful. And summer is when most of the reunions are held. Then I spent the last six years in Columbia, South America. So I never wanted to leave wherever I was and, and gather for um, a reunion where people were beginning to talk about this. And on that Facebook page, the Happy Memories one, more and more people began sharing their stories and their observations. There were complaints that it was supposed to be just the happy memories of CAJ. So the administrator of that flashback page started a separate survivors page called Free at Last CAJ. And then a third Facebook page was created with a different set of administrators with a slightly different perspective on things. As much as I dislike Facebook as a platform and its uh, its ethics, you know, it seems like it was so uh, instrumental in allowing people to voice and share their experiences and to mobilize. I mean, a lot of different approaches to the news of the abuse, like you said, that there is it's kind of interesting to think about these different Facebook groups uh, popping up and the reactions and even the name free at last, you know, that's, that is uh, making big assumptions and forcing, uh, forcing a type of expectation for survivors of abuse. Um, so yes. that's, that's the yes. one that's not active anymore. And then there's that third one you mentioned, that's the CAJ Abuse Survivors uh, Support Group, Facebook. Yes, yes. So you said that finding out about the abuse made you angry, uh, which, of, of course, totally makes sense. And and for you, you really followed up with, with this uh, history of abuse and it instigated action. So what made it that so that you couldn't walk away after hearing about the abuse? Well, it was that triggering first story about the dorm situation that kind of set the hook for me. I, I just couldn't believe it. And I, I just thought, this is wrong. And, and the CJ I believed in, I remembered, surely they would want to do something about it. Um, so my, really, my conscience drove me. And as I looked at it, I just just described it as the passive complicity that I saw there. And much as I love CAJ, I felt that if I did nothing, if I said nothing, I wasn't any better than the administrators, the teachers, the adults of the past, who at the very least ignored the red flags and at worst swept it all under the rug and just naively thought it'll go away. It didn't. And the survivor stories that have come forth indicate that so many alumni are still living with the pain of that past. So you felt this responsibility 
I've heard these stories. Now I know the truth. Now I need to do something. Right. And so mm-hmm. what did you do? Well, uh, my immediate reaction to the reports was write a letter to those in charge. <laughs> that had always been my parents' MO when they wanted change or action. My mother was a great letters to the editor, writer through her whole life. And I think that because of them, they were both writers. My I ended up with a career in journalism and um, creative writing. And I really used that background and training in my approach. I, I graduated from a Christian college, Houghton in Western New York, and um, started my career working at the weekend magazine of the Toronto Star. I worked in Toronto, Atlanta, Chattanooga, Pueblo, Colorado, and then Anchorage. And my career was primarily in business communication, marketing, public relations, and government relations. Government relations led really to a role in advocacy, especially in the areas of healthcare reform and then the push for mental health parity and done a lot of strategic planning and position paper writing. I'd been employed by both Republicans and Democrats in various aid positions and um, had always worked on constituent relations and really saw firsthand the importance and the effectiveness of advocacy We always kept count of issue support. I mean, how many people care enough about this topic to write us a letter? And we would count those daily tallies. And even if somebody just signed a pre-written postcard, it added to the count. And (laughs) talking about postcards, dating myself. Now they do it emails or any other form of electronic communication. So it's it's measuring the level of interest and concern in a topic. So that was the approach I used. So when I became aware of what happened at CAJ, I immediately wrote to Anda Foxwell, head of school, and I copied the CAJ board and the home offices of each of the six founding missions, you know, the founding missions of CAJ, to get the attention of the key stakeholders. I wrote that my first letter to Anda Foxwell on November 17th, 2017. I know the timelines don't mean a lot to most people, but I keep remembering the first time I wrote as a 72-year-old then, a retiree in South America, uh, writing to Anda and just expressing my concern um, and shock and uh, what had happened. And uh, with my own happy memories of CAJ, I'm heartsick that other alumni don't have the same. I do not want to be like the adults of our past who did not deal with this. I stand now and speak out in support of the alumni, CAJ alumni who were so harmed. And I got a pretty quick email back from Anda Foxwell, polite, but it was just sort of, if you know of individuals who've been hurt in the past, please invite them to contact me. And emphasis that they have protocols in place now that should eliminate such abuses. So that's when I began reaching out to survivors who were posting on the Facebook page and um, other alumni that had in my older group, people who graduated from 64 
back to the beginning. And I encourage them to write to the school and the missions and their own parents' missions. But I can't be sure, but I don't think many did. A few did. And at that stage, I really didn't understand how extraordinarily difficult it is for survivors to speak up for themselves. They can talk to each other. They can share their stories on these closed Facebook pages. But anything beyond that is nearly, it's very, very hard. So you were reaching out to the survivors and you were keeping track of what was happening on the Facebook pages. And you actually did some work to organize the, the, the posts that you were seeing on these Facebook pages, right? Can you tell us yes. more about that? Yeah. I really began to track the incidents and, and the reports on those Facebook pages and these emails from my peers, just so I could keep it all straight. And I, I felt like a detective kind of burrowing down through all, you know, how those conversation threads get lost on Facebook in particular, because, you know, one person writes and someone responds and someone responds to the response. And I was just getting all mixed up. So without using any victim names, I began categorizing the abuses people were writing about. And I I looked at them this way. I logged adult abuses on children and included sexual abuse. And I, I should note here over and over again, the abused child was threatened by the abuser that if they told anyone, their parents' ministry would be threatened. You know, they'd have to leave Japan if the kids told anyone. This came from the worst of the pedophiles. Another category, I began logging cruelty, the corporal punishment. And so many people say, well, yeah, spare the rod, spoil the child attitude prevailed at the time. But we, the research was showing parents were okay if they did it to their children but they weren't so excited when someone else did it to their children. But there was this really cruel abuse, especially in the dorms of beatings. And I came to realize even worse than that was the psychological terror of the dorm students was scary enough to have the dorm mother come around at night, put her ear down to your mouth to see if your breath was sleeping breath or faking it. And getting beaten if you weren't asleep. So how are you ever going to go to sleep? (laughs) Worrying about that. Um, Of course, children wet their beds with that kind of terror uh, hanging over them all the time. Even back then, we had reports of another category that I've described as racism, reported by some of the Chinese students. Really an inability to recognize Um, other nationalities. I wouldn't describe it in any way as abuse, but I think I have shared the story before that, you know, the teacher getting mad at me because I wouldn't pledge allegiance to the flag or sing the national anthem or put my hand over my heart. And I said, but I'm Canadian. It would be a lie if I repeated those words, if I sang that national anthem and this teacher just didn't get that at all. Worst of all, in terms of adults abusing children, I think was a failure to protect 
that's how I the category that adults who were in charge and should have been paying attention to these red flags. And when they discovered abuse, they were not transparent. They maybe dealt with the abuser, but they didn't tell other parents what had happened. They didn't ask, you know, have you talked to your children about this? I know at one point, boys were asked about possibly being abused by Cliff Ryan, who I call the worst of the pedophiles. And of course, the boys all shook their heads because he was one who threatened their parents' ministry if they said anything. So there was also this lack of understanding of how to help like children in a way that recognizes, you know, how they might respond if they've been traumatized or even, even if they haven't, just what's the best way to handle this problem? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All of those things we, I'm sure educators know all the protocols now, but you know, and we recognize it was a different time. But as I said, there were these red flags with different responses, like the like the Japanese staff in the dorm reporting that they found this Cliff Ryan in dorm students' beds when they came in in the morning. And that's a pretty big red flag. And that wasn't responded to immediately. I, I can't. I can't really answer that. The sense I get is that it was not. It's one of those stories that was reported, but I I don't know any details, really. And then I I had a category with the student-on-student abuse. So there was bullying. And a lot of that stuff, you know, would say, oh, that's just kids roughhousing, or that's the way it is in dorms. But the dorm swirlies you know, sticking a kid's head in a dirty toilet and flushing it. One bully making, putting feces on a piece of toast and making his uh, peers eat it. Mock hangings, threatening kids, hanging them up in a noose on tippy toes on a chair. And they had to beg to be let down. The person that told me that story was smart enough to know not to give in and hung on. But Oh my goodness, burning a, a dorm mate with heating up a needle and plunging it into their body, burning needles. And then there was true sexual abuse, a wide range of sexual abuse episodes, I guess you could call them, or abusers. Of student on student sexual abuse. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And there were times I, I wonder if, am I, am I blowing this out of proportion? And then I go back and reread what survivors had shared, and I was just horrified all over again. To me, the underlying tragedy, the irony of all this, is that while missionaries were trying to save the souls of the Japanese, they lost, in their terms, they lost the souls of their children. So many left the church. So many sad, sad outcomes. I've spent hundreds of hours just emailing alumni, um, posting on survivors' pages, encouraging people to write. I researched other schools, looking at the abuse that happened at ASIJ, the American School in Japan, and other mission schools. And because I was living in Alaska, I was very familiar with the horrific things that happened in 
Indian schools, mostly run by missionaries in Alaska and Canada, and now we realize in the U.S. as well. So sort of going back to my timeline, in um, March 2018, so more than a year after I'd first written, the administrator of that second Facebook page, I Am Free, CAJ, closed it, saying, you know, I was the only one ever posting anything on it, and essentially told that my efforts were probably useless, hopeless, that it was all about the money and CAJ reputation with the Japanese marketing themselves as a, a really good international school so they wouldn't do anything to jeopardize it. This was suggested to me. Anyway, with that discouragement, I, I did join this third Facebook page of survivors and supporters. And um, there I found this core group, a little group of people who were equally dedicated to finding uh, what I kept calling a measure of peace and justice and healing for survivors. So we just kept plugging away. Well, continuing on with this kind of timeline, you know, I was getting pretty discouraged, but so often I felt like we're all talking amongst ourselves and getting nowhere. In the fall of 2018, there was a reunion of three classes, 65, 66, and 67. My sister happens to be part of that group. And they had a discussion on the abuses. And there was a general feeling, I'm not sure it was a consensus, but there was a general kind of agreement that there should be an investigation. Um, Howard Blair was there. And so the reports came back to me that you know people felt something should be done. So that really re-energized me. Mm-hmm. And I spent more and more time in October of that year, sent a second letter to the school and boards. And response at the time really discouraged me, the response I got from Anda Fotswell, that she needed to hear firsthand reports, not from a third party advocate. And this was, sorry to interrupt, this was a year after you had first sent yes. a letter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she responded, she needed these firsthand reports. Well, I was a little miffed, but I, I, under, I understand where she was coming from. She needed firsthand reports. In that reunion were people who were able to give me information and help me in in tracking down eventually six very courageous people who were willing to give their firsthand reports to CAJ. And their reports got to the school and the board in time for the November board meeting. Also in that group of alumni, the years um, 65 to 67, was Kathy Collins Shelton now, who has her PhD, and she's a nurse practitioner, now retired, who spent her whole career helping child abuse victims in um, on the West Coast. And she was very instrumental, I believe, in helping CAJ leadership understand this whole strange world of child abuse victims, survivors, and and all the trauma and history involved with that. 
At the same time, I reached out to Howard Blair and to Martin Essenberg, knowing Howard had been at the reunion. And I asked them to join us in encouraging the school to do an independent, official independent investigation of the abuse. They both responded to me. Howard Blair then did research and contacted uh, a specialist on the issue. I heard from Essenberg, as I said, he certainly acknowledged some awareness and talked a bit about forcing the resignation of Cliff Ryan. But I really haven't heard from him since then. By the time of that November CAJ board meeting, I had put together a list of 57 different incidents, I call them, of all these different categories of abuse. And I kept them anonymous um, unless someone had given me their permission to share their story. Or if, obviously, in the case of these six people who told the, they gave the real report. In digging through all of these conversations on Facebook, I'd also found out that there was corroboration from other alumni who weren't abused, but they recalled seeing something happen. I saw the teacher plunge that pencil into your head. I saw you being smashed into the uh, lockers by a teacher. And this cooperation became very important in establishing what these investigations call the preponderance of evidence in supporting the claims of abuse. We keep emphasizing this has not been a criminal investigation, just impossible to do too long ago, nothing reported at the time. But the kind of investigation that's been done is looking for this preponderance of evidence, something over 51% that indicates these things more than likely happen. So often people say, well, I didn't, I wasn't abused, so I haven't talked to Telios. And I'd say, but you saw this and this and this. You do need to contact them and tell them your story. So that was kind of where all the information we gave to the CAJ board for that November meeting. Wow. So you really put in a lot of, uh, a tremendous amount of work in contacting uh, survivors of abuse and those also who uh, may have uh, witnessed something um, and encouraging them to share their stories and then um, also doing this work of almost a detective work kind of just going through yeah. old Facebook posts and creating a time timelines and categorizing these incidents in a way that it would be useful as, as evidence in an investigation. Um, mm-hmm. So how did you position yourself to become a, a safe person for survivors to share their accounts with? I, well, I, th- I think it's people felt safe because they knew I was listening. I heard them and abused alumni recognized I believed them. Um, I, I get messages and calls, you know, sometimes in the middle of the night, someone telling me their story, remembering today the pain they were still living with. Or someone would describe a situation. And because I'd heard something so similar to that, I'd say, this wasn't so-and-so that did this to you, was it? And they would just be shocked. But it, it was so clear to me. I, I just felt like I was doing a jigsaw puzzle sometimes. 
you know, someone would tell me something and it would fall into place. And there would the next little piece would fall into place. <laughs> I, sometimes I think, you know, maybe people felt a grandma in South America at the time was a safe kind of person to talk to. I, I just was so moved by all of these stories. And we try not to call them stories, reports. They, they were real things that happened to our peers, our classmates, our other alumni. So maybe because you were you had some distance, I guess, that made you someone that maybe people felt safer sharing their deep, painful memories with. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So then in January of 2019... CAJ issued a formal apology. Um, so then what happened? Yes, it was very quick after that uh, November board meeting. And then in January, they, they heard the first reports, they believed them, and they issued this apology. And I sort of sat back and I thought, whoa, so now what? But the whole thing, you know, I was pleased. I, it was well written. Realize now these apologies. Somebody who's a good writer can do wonderful apologies. So this one sounded good, but for the survivors, it just fell flat. It fell flat. And I was, by then, I was personally um, just exhausted. I told my husband, oh, I think this probably will be a year's worth of effort when I began it. And I just felt at that point I, I needed to step back and said, does anyone want to take this on? And Debbie Rhodes, fortunately, thankfully, stepped forward. Um, but I've stayed involved with it all, primarily because they, it needs communications support. And, and because I've had this now sort of historical perspective on the steps that have been taken. And I, I really want to point out here I was I really appreciated the the podcast you did with Debbie and Brenda. And I know the question comes up, you know, how come these people are doing it? And I really describe it as leadership by default. It's simply been the people who've been willing to step up, to give some time and and then stick with it, depending on our availability and the specific skills we can bring to it. So you know, if others want to help, that that would be great. So after this disappointment was expressed by so many alumni, we drafted that formal letter to the board and admissions asking them for an independent investigation. And it was signed by over 80 alumni. It's That's on the survivors uh, and supporters Facebook page. And very soon after that, I, I really, I was, I have to say how pleased we were and how quickly they made the decision to go ahead with um, the investigation. So very quickly after we sent that letter to the, the board, they announced two different investigations. One was the investigation with the Telios Law Firm, the CAJ Board, and four of the missions were funding that. SEND decided they would do their own investigation. And theirs 
was rather peculiar. They had a very limited focus on the years 1959 to 1970 and only focused on their missionaries, but not all of them. OMS, for some reason, was not participating at all. So um, the two investigations began and Telios contracted with some independent investigators, contracted investigators, not their employees, and they literally crossed the world to talk to alumni. Uh, Telios team members, uh, they would fly to the location of the survivors? Yeah, to Japan, Britain. They came down to Columbia to interview me um, and another alumna alumna who was also there in Medellin with me. So it just did a very thorough report. So at this point now, more survivors have been sharing their their accounts and it's become more widely known in the CHA community and alumni community uh, that there was this history of abuse in CHA's past. Uh, and so how would you describe the reaction of alumni throughout all of this? Really all sorts of reactions. I mean, some would say the best years in my life were at CHA. Why dig up the past? I mean, it's terrible to, especially the naming of the headmasters, Essenberg and Blair, in the initial send report, which has already come out. And I think Brenda described that really well. It was so sad that people focused on the naming of Martin Essenberg as the headmasters during the time, rather than focusing on what had been done, the damage done, the abuses done to children. So people saying, don't destroy the uh, reputation of CHA. How can you do this? Others, obviously, you know, all this happened a long time ago before my time at CAJ. It's nothing to do with me. On a positive note, lots of people expressing appreciation that something was finally being done. Among survivors, um, the reaction could be, I had no idea that someone else went through the same things I went through. I never told my family, or perhaps I told my family, but they never believed me. Some survivors are still refusing to talk to any investigators. Um, I still don't want to talk about it. I don't want to have anything to do with CAJ or any of the investigations. People that would describe themselves as supporters, the siblings, some of them had no idea that a brother or a sister had been abused, or others did know about it and suffered that what we're describing as secondary trauma um, because of the implications it had, the impact it had on the families. Other supporters say, I feel terrible about all of this, but I really don't feel I have the right to say anything. But those are the people who have been so helpful in, in corroborating the stories when they saw something and reported it. And really, it's to those supporters, I say, you are in the best position to speak up. You can give strength and encouragement and confirmation and be the voice of 
survivors, this is about your childhood friends, your classmates, your siblings, and they really, really need you to speak up for them. I've been thinking a lot about these different reactions, and I think that part of the struggle of understanding what do we do now that we know is that we don't really have examples in our culture of addressing something that has been done in a holistic way. I think that there's this cultural narrative of just like, oh, well, if something bad happens, we'll rely on the legal system and we'll just find out who's the bad guy and just lock them up. Right. Right. And that's, it's like a very limited understanding of what it means to address harm and heal from harm. Because locking somebody up in a prison does not heal anybody, right? Right. And I think that it's kind of like I've been saying, the conversations that we're having on this podcast, it feels like we're practicing something that we haven't really done before. And talking about how do we really holistically address harm and support healing is maybe something new for a lot of us. And we don't really know what that can even look like. And I think it's really amazing that we've had this leadership from you and from the others and from the survivors and and the fact that there's a unified group who can kind of help us I guess help guide our understanding. I think this this uh you know this focus on our podcast it's helping us all kind of digest and guide our understanding of okay what happened and and then what do we do now? And so going back to, you know, we're waiting to hear about the report coming out, but uh, what can we be doing now to, to address the harm, to support the survivors, to support healing? I, I really appreciate your comments, this whole thing about healing. I think there's a mistaken feeling that we're asking the school and the missions to help us heal. And that's not it at all. We're saying you need to look at your organizations and find healing and make changes there. The survivors will find their own healing. We're really hoping we can be a model for other schools with similar situations in in how we all handle this together and separately. We, We... don't know yet, as I said earlier, of what the Telios report is going or and recommendations will be. But I, it just would be so wonderful to have a groundswell of support from alumni going to the school and missions, asking that they follow through on the recommendations of the review panel, this independent review panel that responded to the investigators' reports. We don't know what the recommendations will be from Telios. Will they agree with all of the things we reported? I think the, the SEND response from their investigation does give us a, a little clue as to what will evolve out of the um, Telios report. SEND confirmed our reports of abuse. The, the incidents, the cases, the individuals they looked at, what we reported they confirmed. So I don't think there will be any 
situation where the reports in the Tellius report that will be different from what we had discovered. In addition to confirming our reports of abuse, SEND had already offered to um, assist in therapy for abused alumni. And again, they focused on their missionaries, with the exception of the first headmaster of CAJ, who was one of their employees that they claimed they couldn't find his work record, even though he was a 50-year personnel director for the SEND home office. But SEND did offer to assist in therapy costs for their for the alumni abused by their uh, missionaries, which was pretty traumatic for those who tried to access those funds, having to share their entire medical history with the mission before they could get uh, access to care. I don't think anybody's actually accessed therapy through them. The Tellius investigation has been quite different, as Debbie Rhodes and Brenda Seat indicated in your podcast with them. It had a much broader scope. It wasn't limited by years. It was just where they could get these firsthand reports. We really worked with them in good faith. They invited Debbie and Brenda to a couple of key points in their work when the investigators were first meeting, learning about the whole CAJ background, they invited Debbie to come and speak with them. She gave a powerful PowerPoint. They did the same thing when the review panel, independent again, they presented the same PowerPoint and then additional information. So we really felt included in all of that. And Again, hope it will be a model for similar investigations in the future. Many uh, other Christian schools and missionary boarding schools, there are incidents of abuse. There's more and more uh, accounts coming out. So I'm sure the work that you all are doing will be very helpful for people in the future as well who are grappling with their own institutions uh, um, history of abuse, especially in the Christian context. Um, yeah. So uh, Debbie and Brenda shared about the alumni desired outcomes for the investigations pre- on the previous two episodes, but could you just refresh us and remind us what those are? Yes. Um, first, let me say what we're not trying to do. We're not trying to destroy the school or the missions. Instead, we feel they have an opportunity to also be models in how to lead and, and work through these kinds of situations. We're, we're really asking them to do the right thing. The, the three key desired outcomes are, are, first of all, public and fulsome acknowledgement of wrongdoing. We're, we're really hoping that this investigation leads to internal review, as I said before, repentance by the missions and, and change within their organizations. We're hoping that this public acknowledgement truly is public. Personally, I, I feel it needs to be more than a post on a mission website or a school website. It's so quickly 
becomes buried um, on a web page. It can be front page and then, you know, subsequently becomes part of the front page menu tab and then it sort of disappears completely. So the case with the uh, send report. Yes. Right. So I hope there's a way we can together announce these findings and um, something that causes people to do more than just glance and read and then forget it. Um, A second outcome we're looking for is establishment of this independently managed fund for survivor healing therapies that I had talked about before. Some separate entity that could manage our survivor needs and perhaps for all mission school kids trying to um, access therapy in the future. And um, third, it it's, might sound a little trivial, but we think it's really symbolic that there's some sort of never again memorial at CAJ. And with that memorial, an affiliated curriculum that could be revisited annually to carry, to tell the story of this investigation, to share a bit of the history so that students know it's okay to tell someone when something happens to them. It's, it's going to happen again. As we've said before, especially pedophiles, they find the vulnerable organizations and missionary kids' schools are vulnerable. And for the adults, the message is listen when the children tell you what's happened to them. Yeah, so there's a physical, visual memorial, and then there's also this very concrete, I guess, curriculum or teaching of what happened so that everyone knows the history and everyone, including children and adults, are more equipped to know what to do in case they see or hear anything. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I was not taught that. So I definitely see that as a need. Yeah. 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 And yeah. So what, what can we do as alumni? How can we encourage support uh, all of your efforts? Well, as I've said before, those of us who were not, abused have a huge responsibility to speak up for those who were and and still can't talk publicly about it we saw this so clearly with the the send report you know i thought they'd be immediately pounding out their letters to send but it's still so hard for them those victims to talk about it it's almost I mean, it, their voices are frozen so many times. Um, the minute we receive that Telios report and, recommend, and the recommendations, which will include, as I understand it, the official response from the CAJ board and the missions, we need to respond back to them and encourage them to follow through on the recommendations. I think probably because of the delay we've had, people could start writing now saying, you know, I'm following, watching, we're anxious to hear, please follow through on whatever the recommendations are. 
um, after the report comes out, you can write and express your thanks. You can express your disappointment, but let them know you care. You care about alumni. You care about your your peers. You care about the work of CAJ, but they have to know you're watching and following and looking for these desired outcomes. So contact the school board, the school, head of school, those six missions. It's really important to contact the mission your parents were with if they're part of those six missions or whatever mission they were. They still need to know know, what went on. Would it be helpful if we... If maybe we shared a sort of a template or suggested. Yes, I I think so. I mean, as I said, even, you know, something that's pre-written, mm-hmm. they still have to be counted. Because uh, maybe no one has done something like that before. So we could share right. a, like an example, a model for yes, others to, yes. to copy. We could do one for now and then one when it comes out. Yeah. Um, the, the letter we wrote that 81 80 signed that had impact so i think we will certainly have that kind of letter it really helps to have lots of uh, pieces of communication going their way Mm. so yeah uh, i think we can draft a couple of documents and have the list of emissions i i mean uh, and emails i mean it's for some of them, all I could ever get was info at such and such commission. But every time I've done that, it immediately gets to the president or the okay. CEO. Yeah, we so- can definitely publish like all of the contact information and and uh, like a reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. That's I think great. our listeners, there are many people uh, from younger generations who know about the investigations and this part of CHA's history, but not sure how to uh, support the survivors. So having uh, something like that would be really great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you, with the letter you all wrote for recent issues. um, I think that's um, with um, the, the the three uh Erica and Nashe and uh Julie. Julie. Yeah, they, they were yeah. they were a couple years uh below us. Yeah, they led that uh effort in, in drafting the Yeah, project. and lots of us old alumni signed on to that. Mm. Um so I think it's it, that's an, a very effective tool. Yeah. Great. Do you have any other comments on advocacy as someone who has really led advocacy efforts around this? Well, it's clear that CAJ wasn't unique and abuses have happened in so many organizations, especially, and unfortunately, those church-related. So many involved abuses of long ago, and there's been no opportunity for any kind of criminal or civil case. But there's really a growing movement to remove the statutes of limitations in such cases. Colorado, where I'm based now, uh, for example, just this past summer, passed legislation which allows action against 
Colorado-based organizations with employees who were abusers, and they can take it back to 1960. And I'm sure this is for people who like to get involved. Um, I'm sure there's opportunity for anyone to get involved in their own state or wherever, whatever country they live in. There are opportunities to to become advocates for much broader group of people. One of the discoveries we made during this whole process was the number of premature deaths at CAJ. I'm 76, or I will be 76 in December. But anyone who has died before me, I feel I consider premature deaths. But there were so many deaths in the classes from the 1970s. It just jumps out at us as we look at the record. And that's one of my other little pieces of investigation on all of this. There are, I'm not sure that it's quite up to date, but six, there were six suicides. There have been four deaths due to addiction, an awful lot of cancers. Just why did so many people pass away so young? At least 17 families have lost at least two children. Alumni from another group of MK schools, the CIM OMF Chifu schools, one of the school I attended in Karizawa was essentially a Chifu school. They've noted the same thing. Was it different from the average U.S. high school mortality numbers? We think it would be a really good PhD thesis for someone. We'd love for somebody to look into that. Alumni are still, still in pain. Many are experiencing chronic illnesses and battle addiction, homelessness. So we have an opportunity to speak out on their behalf. And what resources would you suggest for someone who maybe went to a different school and uh, would like to maybe do similar work, but in a different context? Well, we talked about it earlier. Social media has made it easy to communicate, find alumni, and especially these informal alumni Facebook pages. Unfortunately, there are headlines every week featuring well-known schools and churches and organizations where abuses have happened. And like Moody was, Moody in Chicago was in the Washington Post a few months ago. Every time one of those stories pops up, it's an opportunity to discuss it in your your Facebook, your your um, alumni face group pages, and and remember that it it really takes just a few dedicated people, and and change can happen. That we can find this measure of peace and healing that we want so badly for all of these. Um, survivors. I I know our CAJ group would be glad to share advice and information as others have with us. There is a group called the MK Safety Network, um, which represents lots of missions in all over the world. It's been a great resource for us. And um, I'd also recommend a book that was written by the China Inland Mission OMF MK Schools. It's called Scent, Reflections of Missions, Boarding School, and Childhood. It's available through Amazon. 
you've been a great help and encouragement to us. I reached out to them after reading the book. I mean, it was just deja vu. And it's also through them with Ruth Van Rieken, who wrote and was a co-author of Third Culture Kids, reached out to us. And she's become, I think she's become more than an observer or more than just providing an analytical review of who we all are. But Mm -hmm. she has recognized she's one of us. She's in there waiting through all of this with us. So there's a real movement um, to help each other find some results. I would love to ask you the question that we usually end our podcast is even just very briefly, what does radical healing look like to you? It certainly has changed. My perception has changed since I first started on this. As I said, I thought, you know, the missions, the school should be providing us with healing. It begins with the individual, I think, the radical healing. I'm reminded of that old song, Let There Be Peace on Earth and Let It Begin With Me. I think radical healing begins within, and you can't force it on anybody else. You've got to focus on healing yourself. I'm realizing how much it affects all of us, not just us. It affects our children, those of us who've had children and grandchildren finding ways we may have to change ourselves to begin healing and then we can help others heal. But yeah, that's where I am on it. Yeah. It's about getting to the roots of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm just thinking, you know, maybe some people who want to defend institutions like CHA, they will say, Oh, you know, it was just a few bad apples. And it's all all in the past and we're different now. Um, But as we see, you know, in the news, there's constantly new reports of abuse in Christian spaces. Recently, new new incidents with uh, reported with Young Life, which is a really uh, widespread national uh, in a U.S. I believe U.S. only organization for kids and youth. Liberty University, really terrible, terrible stuff coming out from there. Yes, yes. Um, and countless other institutions, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, and a lot is coming to the light. And, you know, with it just being a persistent problem, I think it really begs the question to for, for these Christian leaders to ask, what is it about these spaces that seems to perpetuate and encourage abuse I hope that missions and CAJ will consider the root causes of these cases of culture uh, that enables abuse. Um, I don't know how realistic that is, you know, with also the Christian tendency to place sin on the individual and resolve it through forgiveness and just an individual change and reconciliation. Um, But I really do hope that there will be institutional healing as well. Just like uh, Debbie said, you know, unless uh, um, an institution can 
heal its past, it's not going to be healthy. So just on an institutional level as well, we hope that there will be radical healing. And, and, and of course, for, for the individuals today, many of these alumni who carry so much pain even today, we really hope that there can be healing. Yes, yes. There, there has been a silver lining to this. Um, it's been reconnecting with other alumni, connecting for the first time with the younger generation like you, <laughs> you too. And for me, it's been really wonderful to connect and meet younger siblings or even the children and grandchildren of people from my time. And for those of us in our senior years, it's kind of like um, circling back around again. I mean, it's a time when you reflect in your life anyway. And it, it certainly is taking us back to our roots and evaluating the the real impact of CAJ on our lives. I just want to say thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate, you know, taking time out of your hectic schedule to talk with us. And also thank you so much for the work that you have been doing for years and years and years on this. Thank you so much for all of that time that you spent that now we are benefiting from your work. You're very welcome. It's it, it's it's been really um, a very moving experience for me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Healing Podcast. This podcast is made by Erica Hughesby and Julianne Cardell with music by Marlos Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com, and follow us on Instagram at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who'd like to share their story, whether it's about the CAJ experience, growing up international, or Radical Healing. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at radicalhealingpod at gmail.com.